The Appendix N Podcast, Episode 35, Swords Against Death, by Fritz Leiber. This is the Appendix N Podcast, the show where we discuss the novels and stories that influenced Gary Gygax in his creation of Dungeons and & Dragons. And with me, as always, is my co-host, Jeff Wickstrom. I am happy to be here. And Jeff, do you say Leiber or Lieber? I... You know, I generally go through my day without saying either one, and uh, if I was going to pick one, I would probably say uh, Liber, and that's pr- I'm going to guess that that's wrong. I have a terrible instinct for that kind of thing. And uh, I'm, I'm going to ask uh, each of each of my guests uh, this this question. Uh, we 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 are we have a packed house tonight. Uh, we have three special guests. Uh, joining us tonight is Jeremiah McCoy. Hi, Leo. There. And do you say do you say Fritz Leiber or Fritz Lieber? I say Leiber, but I to be fair, I heard Julius Schwartz call it Leiber, and I take him as an expert. All right. And uh, do you want to reintroduce yourselves yourself to the uh, audience? Uh, yes, I am a general geek about town. I have uh, some YouTube chops and various other things, uh, but basically, I I'm a Gamer geek extraordinaire. He is. All right. And also joining us is Chris Constantine. Hi there. Pleased to meet you, everybody, again. It's good to be back on board. Welcome back. And do you say Fritz Leiber or Fritz Lieber? I think Leiber, but that's just me because it sounds awfully a lot like one of my favorite animes, Monster. Kind of a sound, same sounding, but honestly, it could go either way. And do you want to reintroduce yourself to the listening audience? Okay, uh, I guess just like our good buddy uh, Jeremiah, I am a geek about town. I currently have been co-hosting the RPG Circus for the last few months, uh, being involved in all sorts of crazy writing, and even have something to show at the end of the show. Oh, okay, okay. So you're 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 going to wait to the end of the show to talk to talk about your recent publication? Absolutely, I think it's only appropriate based on data. Okay, uh, and uh, Peter Foxhoven. Liber or hey, Lieber? Uh, I'm going to go with Liber uh, because German diphthongs have an inverse pronunciation based on uh, as opposed to English. So if it's E-I, it is always a long I sound. Ooh, someone, someone's phone is, is ringing. Sorry about that. Well, I'm glad it, it wasn't just a ringing in, in my ears. All right, uh, continue, Peter. Oh, yeah, that's, that's basically why I would... No, not basically. That's why I would say Liber. <laughs> Okay. Well, through the through the power of Google, I was able to find a uh, a line from an essay that Fritz Leiber wrote in 1991, uh, in which he in which he said, and I quote, "I'm forever having to explain that it's pronounced Leiber, not Lieber, and correspondingly spelled Leiber, not Lieber." Wow, that's like almost a Frankenstein Frankenstein moment. Well, I, I, I thought this would be a more interest, interesting and controversial topic, and it turned out it was it was not. Um. Well, you know, that's, that's the, the problem of the information age that we live in, is where so many, uh, so many facts that once upon a time there was a fruitful void and we could discuss and debate and you know, maybe we would come up to it with a consensus that wasn't necessarily factually true but contained a certain amount of beauty and poetic truth. And now we're, we're robbed of that. We no longer live in the sort of magical world that Fawford and the Grey Mouser uh, once lived in. I was I was going to make a joke about the short-lived uh, '60s sitcom starring uh, Fritz Fritz Leiber and a young uh, pop star that that he takes under 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 his wing called Lieber 
to Bieber. Um, that's well, good too. Uh, that's good too. That's good. Um, oh, be proud of it. You should be proud of that one. I, I, I'm going to dispute the pride on that one. <laughs> uh, Peter Foxhoven, please reintroduce yourself to the audience. Okay. Um, I'm, I guess, Peter Foxhoven. I blog sometimes, so not in a long time. Um, just like the others, big gamer. Uh, kind of, I like to self-style myself as the youngest member of the OSR. And I'm um, really, really, really into the works of Robert E. Howard. Thank you, Peter. And now before we get to the meat of the program, here is a word from our sponsor. Hello, I am the anti-paladin. And while I am anti-paladins, I am pro OpenGamingStore.com. They're an amazing site where they're giving Tome listeners 10% off with the coupon code TOME2016. Yes, you can get tons of amazing gaming products there. And they have awesome bundles and deals every single week. So check them out. OpenGamingStore.com Let's go kill some good paladins. All right, so uh, since this is the first time we're talking about Fritz Leiber on our show, I will give a short rundown of his uh, biography. Fritz, Before you do that, can I ask Can I ask one question, which is how young do you have to be to be the youngest <laughs> member of the OSR? Well, I guess younger than... I'm, I just turned 29, and there aren't oh, a lot wow. of people my age or younger that are running around uh, talking about how much better... Real quick, how much better the Furbolg was in second ed than what they just released for... The Volo thing. Uh, anyway, uh, now they're just now they're just forest gnomes. Now they're just oversized forest gnomes. What happened to my furbolg? I'm just getting angry. I'm sorry. Yeah, 29. That's pretty young for the OSR. Uh, yeah, I, I actually played D and D before you were born. That is awesome, and I commend you, sir. <laughs> are you are you even shaving yet? Dude, well, okay. Many of my family don't have strong beard growing genes. Uh, neither, neither do I, really. Uh, so I can't really grow a beard. I, I personally want uh, the Ver- Verbeeg giants because in the second edition Monster Manual, I thought they looked like giant D- D- Danny DeVitos. Oh, they do! Mm-hmm. Awesome. <laughs> okay. Uh, Fritz Reuter Leiber Jr. Uh, was born December 24th, 1910 in Chicago, and he passed away on September 5th, 1992, uh, a day after my 12th birthday. Uh, I was not uh, made aware of it at the time. Uh, According to Wikipedia, he was an American writer of fantasy, horror, and science fiction. He was also a poet, actor in theater and films, playwright, and chess expert, uh, with writers such as Robert E. Howard and Michael Moorcock, Liber can be regarded as one of the fathers of sword and sorcery fantasy, having in fact created the term. Moreover, he excelled in all fields of speculative fiction, writing award-winning work in fantasy, horror, and science fiction. Uh, he introduced his famous characters Fawford and the Grey Mauser in August 1939 in Unknown Magazine, edit- edited by John W. Campbell. Uh, apparently, Fawford was based on the author himself, and The Grey Mauser was based on uh, friend and fellow author Harry Otter Fisher. Uh, they apparently created the characters um, through through uh, correspondence with each other. Uh, Fawford and The Grey Mauser are notable in fiction, according to Wikipedia, for uh, 
over the course of their stories, they 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 grow, they take on more more responsibilities, they get get married, etc. Uh, in in other words, they they have an arc. I assume they don't get married to each other. Uh, no, not Just that I know. Forties. Yeah. Uh, well, he he so. wrote these stories uh, all all throughout his 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 life. Well, well into in into the seventies. So. Um, we will be covering covering uh, Fritz Leiber for a while. Uh, his early influences were H.P. Lovecraft and Robert Graves. In fact, he received a letter of encouragement from Lovecraft in 1936, which is what uh, inspired him to take up writing. Uh, incidentally, 1936 was one year before Lovecraft uh, passed away, sadly. Uh, he earned little money as a writer uh, in his early days. He was addicted to alcohol and downers, as all good writers are. Uh, he actually received royalty checks from TSR uh, for games uh, based on on uh, Lankmar in the in the 70s. Um, all, all I'm going to really say about his later career uh, now, because it it amuses me, in, in 1975 he was he was named Gandalf Grand Master of, of Fantasy by the World Science Fiction Convention, otherwise known as Worldcon. Yay! And you get a point. Uh, Good for him. Yeah, as as far as titles go, Gandalf Grand Master of Fantasy, um, that's 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 an imp- impressive title. Didn't he also have a hand in the founding of the Society for Creative Anachronisms? Uh, that is not something I uncovered in my research. Do you have any knowledge of how it was that he knew or was influenced by Robert Graves? No. <laughs> My my, influence, my my research consisted of an, an hour of reading uh, Wikipedia entries. That's fifty nine more minutes than I spent on it, and um, I, I I that may have come across as me asking you like a gotcha question. I'm just really curious. Robert Graves wrote, uh, in addition to the famous World War One novel Goodbye to All That, he wrote uh, The White Goddess, which was a nominally nonfiction look at paganism that was tremendously influential in terms of the, uh, the neo-pagan movement. Well, I'm, and I I'm was wondering, wondering how, how the two interacted or if they did. I don't know. Well, I'm, I'm not Sarah Palin, so I'm not, I'm not flummoxed by uh, gotcha questions. Uh, and I appreciate your input. Well, let me extend this invitation to our reader. <laughs> Uh, sorry, our listener. Uh, if you happen to know the answer to this question, please email me at jeffwick at uh, gmail.com. Let me know how Fritz... Uh, Fritz, uh, It was Liber or Lieber? Liber. 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 Uh, Fritz Liber uh, <laughs> and Robert Graves knew each other. Uh, if, if you don't know it, that's okay. You don't have to email me and tell me that you don't know. Um, I'll, just, I'll just take it as read. Thank you, uh, listener. You can, you this, can... Concludes my, this, this concludes my personal I was, message. I was just getting ready to write the email of I don't know and set it to send, resend every day. I I would be happy to get emails from listeners saying that they don't know because that would mean we get emails from, from listeners. Yeah, listeners plural sounds like uh, – that sounds pretty ambitious to me, Jeff. I actually met a guy at Worldcon who said that they listened to our podcast. Okay. This year. Well, are you sure they weren't just trying to be nice? No, I mean he, he was uh, he he was a, a gamer, a game designer. I can't think of his name right now, but he was. Uh, he, we started talking about you know the various things we work on, and I said, "Well, you know, I occasionally guest on the Appendix N podcast." And he says, "Oh, I listen to that all the time. I love that thing." 
Awesome. Well, Guy from Worldcon, if you know how I can be a Gandalf Grandmaster of Fantasy, please write to me and tell me. All right. Uh, so we are discussing uh, three short stories from uh, the collection Swords Against Death. Um, this, this collection was actually first published as Two Sought Adventure in 1957 by Gnome Press, and uh, later published as Swords Against Death in 1970 by Ace Books as part of a seven-volume collection of the Fawford and Grey Mauser stories. Uh, Swords Against Death actually includes, I think, more stories than uh, Two Sought Adventure, um, so they're, they're not exactly the same uh, collection. Yeah, the uh, the Fawford and the Grey Mouser timeline in terms of story publication is weird because you have some stories that were published really early on in magazines, and then some that were, uh, you know, bundled with those stories in anthologies, and then some stories that were written uh, substantially later than the others and bundled with with different anthologies. Well, fortunately, un- unlike uh, Howard, uh, Liber actually lived. Uh, you know, long long enough to 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 oversee the the uh, collection and, and republication of his own uh, work. So the 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 order that they are presented in, and I I can assume is is the order that Liber would like you to read them in. However, because we are Appendix N, uh, we we are going in original publication order. So this is not necessarily the, the order that these stories are presented in the collections, but they are the order that they were originally published. So we're going to start with uh, The Jewels in the Forest, which is, as far as I can tell, the, f- the first uh, Fawford and the Grey Mouser story. So it would have been published in Unknown Magazine in 1939. And it, it's the longest of the three stories that we're going, going to read. Um, it, it's, it seems to me to be very heavily, or, or I can, I can, I can see the, I can see the Lovecraft influence, uh, in the story, because it's a, it's a, it's a slow build to, uh, a big reveal, um, which doesn't turn out to be terrifying so much as, as just vaguely absurd. Yeah, well, I, like, uh, it's been said in the past, it's more of what it's, oh my god, we're in trouble. I don't. I, I don't even know if it's vaguely absurd. It, it is. It is patently absurd. Uh, so, who would who would like to summarize uh, Jewels in the Forest? Uh, I'll take a pass uh, at it. It's uh, the story of two adventurers who go off to investigate the long lost treasure of a somewhat unknown and slightly obscure king who claimed to have the greatest treasure that ever was, and no one will ever find it. And it goes about as well as that usually goes for adventurers. Yeah, it it, it starts off very much like uh, like Dungeons and Dragons. We've we've got a treasure map. We are going to to a to a, a dungeon, and that's really all the setup that 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 we need. Uh, yeah, at the end of the uh, the previous episode of Appendix N, I said that this was the most Dungeons and Dragony uh, thing that we've read yet for Appendix N, and I stand by that. Oh, there's a there's a dude with a sling. There's strange adventure. Um, there's a guy who's scared of snakes. I mean, that's just classic Dungeons and Dragons up and down the board. And so, it's, yeah. it's with a bandit attack too. Like all great adventures begin mm-hmm, with. Mm-hmm. But they're they're barely bandits. They're run of the manger ruffians. 
They're pasture bravos. And there are traps, and uh, there are, uh, in some of the the various stories, there are some thieves' guilds. And, I mean, it is the most uh, foundationally D&D set of stories we've we've read for this show. Yeah, if if, if I didn't know that this was written, like, years before Dungeons & Dragons even existed, I would have said... This is this is based on Liber's, you know, games with his with, with his group. And also, this had the cornerstone of all great uh, adventures, which is widely speculative and wrong information from NPCs. But we're gonna go anyway because riches. Yep. So, so the the dude's name is Ergan of Angargi. That's yeah. that's the guy who built the built the tower that we're that we're going to. I'm just I'm I'm just gonna call him Ergan the Angry. Uh, Works for me. Don't yeah. even try to pronounce fantasy names. That lay, leads madness. So we're 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 introduced to Fawford and the Grey Mauser as they are, they're they're heading towards this uh, dungeon. They're sort of on the run from bandits, but that um, they've they feel like they've given the bandits the slip. Um, there's there's some guy named Lord Vanarsh that that's leading uh, the bandits. Uh, they don't they don't like him. Uh, they they come to the valley where the where the dungeon is supposed to be. They they, they meet some uh, some farmers who they, you know, the great great Mauser being a being a jaded uh, city person just dismisses them as uh, yokels and they, they they entertain the farmers for a while, uh, and then they then they press on to the dungeon, and uh, that that's when uh, Lord Van Arsh and his 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 henchmen attack. Um, Fawford and the Grey Mausers uh, sneak around behind them and 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 get the drop on them and there's a there's a there's a huge uh, melee uh, and then they then they go inside. Yeah, and I would argue that if there was ever a scene that is more dictative than fantasy Vietnam, than that hunt and seek in the forest against the bandits, I've yet to find it. Okay. Well, you know, the old joke about first edition old school D&D, mm-hmm. where it's considered fantasy Vietnam, it's grim dark, you're basically fighting by the slippery rids. If they managed to get punned down long enough, they'd all die. I've never but heard that joke. Not, oh, no, it's, you know, an old joke. You know, it's an old concept as far as that's concerned. Uh, mm. That's one of the reasons why they keep sneaking around and trying to basically dogpile on the bandits, because if they ever stayed still in one spot, then they probably get their asses kicked, as said by the text. Hmm. So this is this is where things start to get a little bit um, love Lovecraftian, and when they're when they're staying overnight with with the farmers, uh, there there's a little girl and there there's an old man who sort of tell funny stories about uh, the tower. They've, they've they've never gone near the tower or or in the tower, but I think it's the little girl who who says there's a there's a gray giant or something, and you and you you have to walk around the tower. Or something to to get the giant to to go to sleep, and uh, you know, Gray Gray Mauser dismisses this as as superstition. But as they're as they're going in, into the tower, they they find all all of these these uh, bodies. And uh, Lord Ranarsh shows up, and he he survived uh, the, the the melee outside. But when they find him, he's already terrified of something. And they he, he sort of tries to flee, but but they they kill him, and then very randomly I thought this this old uh, wizard looking dude 
shows up and says he's the the ancestor of uh, U- Ugarg the Angry or whatever his his name is. I, oh, the I descendant. Thought, yeah, yeah. I I thought thought the scene was was very random because he just he just shows up and gives a big long speech while Fafra and the Grey Mauser stand there and don't really do anything, and he says I'm I'm the ancestor I'm the sorry descendant of um, the guy, and yeah, I'm gonna. I'm gonna put put right. Uh, I, I'm 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 gonna put to rest a great evil or something like that, and then he exits stage right, and there's a loud crunch, and we just find his his body. Yep, exposition dump. Pretty much what it is. Although it it also serves as a furthering of the mystery, which is an interesting use of exposition because. He gives this big dump of this is who I am and I, this this is a trap. This is a terrible place. I'm going to put it into it. And he goes into the other room and something terrible happens to them, and it furthers the mystery of what the heck is going on in this place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. we're we're they're 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 sort of theorizing theorizing that there's some sort of sort of beast because the because the note that, that they found said that there's some sort of guardian which no one can uh, defeat. But uh, the the gray Mauser thinks, well, this this note was written, you know, a really long time ago. Whatever whatever beast uh, the the angry guy planted here, is, you know, must be must be dead. Whatever trap he set must be you know rusted to pieces by now. He's he's very cynical about the whole thing. Um, but but there, there there's also this this building feeling of dread, which he which he can't quite. Uh, explain um and then they 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 go into the next room and they find uh the smash body of the wizard guy um and there's there's a chest uh and two things start to happen i think i think um Fawford starts to look in the chest and the gray mauser looks out the window and sees the the girl farmer approaching because uh, well- Yes. Actually, uh, looking at the stuff here and looking at the book, it was the stone about two feet square, jutting out a little from the rest, whereas boldly engraved in antique Lucarian hieroglyphics. Here rests the treasure of Ergan of I'm Angry. Thank you. Okay. Actually, it was a rock they had to move in some degree. Got it. So, okay. so I think the the uh, the farmer girl starts approaching the tower because she you know she's scared for her for her new. You know, friends. She thinks they're going to get eaten by the gray giant, so that's that's why she shows up. And uh, Fawford, uh, sorry, uh, the the gray Mauser, proving that he's he's not really a bad guy, uh, rushes outside to to try and and intercept her before she gets herself hurt or killed by the bandits who might still be lur- be lurking around. Uh, Fawford looks inside this this box and he he sees this. And this is where I really, I really, I really start to think of of Lovecraft because he 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 sees this inky black substance with like stars in it, that that really reminded me of of uh, Shoggoths. It's it's this it's this inky black substance with 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 sort sort of a lattice work of of jewels floating on the on the top. And he he reaches inside and plucks out like a diamond the size of a of of a skull. I think I. I think it is. It's it's a really big, big diamond, yeah. and this is where where everything gets turned upside down because the whole tower 
uh, basically comes to life and tries to kill everyone in inside. And it's it's revealed that the that the whole tower is is a living creature and the the jewels are its brain. I guess. Fawford just somehow deduces all of this while while he's making his his escape. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and they all they all run outside and the, and the tower is like smashing the ground like like it's a giant flail snail. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it it in some ways is kind of the origin of the mimic. Yeah, uh, I mean it's, it's the origin of lots of things really. Yeah. And it's funny because the great giant ultimately becomes the entire building because it's smashing everybody. The bodies are littered around. They've all been smashed into little pieces. And then you pull it out and you basically have to play dodgeball with the entire building because it's literally extending walls and doors and all sorts of crazy things. Just try to finish off whatever target this is. And the only reason Fastway was able to cling to his sanity is basically because he's so on rest, having to move every minute. Otherwise, he would have lost his sanity in that situation, almost like a Lovecraftian horror. And this shows the difference between this and, say, Lovecraft, because Fathred is a big darn hero. Mm-hmm. And he'll survive this situation. Same yeah. with Mouser, because he basically runs outside and saves her from the fragmentation that's happening outside. Did, so did, 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 did anyone else think of, think of uh, Shoggoth, or, or was, was I the, the, the only one? No, my my mind went not to Lovecraft but to Howard. This really felt like a like a Howard story to me. Um, I could see Fofford in the Conan role, and then the Mouser is one of those sidekicks that Conan occasionally has to have a lot more uh, vested in their surroundings than Conan tends to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's even it's even consistent with Conan, you know, shrugging off the uh, the fell magic, hypnotic magics of the East. Uh, Fawford's just uh, indifference to to the uh, the fear that so grips the Grey Master. I'm right there. I was going to say that uh, the the other thing about Howard relation that stuck out for me is Howard does a lot of slow reveal of the monster. You don't realize what the monster is until it's you know you're fighting it, mm-hmm. and rather than sort of Lovecraft's shtick was it doesn't he doesn't describe the monster he describes the effect of the monster on the people that are who see it that often, whereas Howard it was here's a slow reveal of the monster and you don't realize the monster's there until you're right there with the monster fighting it. That makes sense. No, well, think, thinking back to the case of Charles Dexter Ward and some other Lovecraft stories that we've read, I kind of feel like if Lovecraft had written this story, then the fact that the building was a giant monster would have been just hammered in several times over the course of the story before, uh, before the big reveal. It would have been a story that the, that the old peasant told uh, Fawford and the Grey Mouser about it. The, the little peasant girl would have told them about it. Maybe they would have uh, seen giant building tracks uh, out in the wilderness on the way there. Because uh, one thing Lovecraft did not do was, was subtlety when it mm-hmm. came to that kind of high concept stuff. Yeah, bless his heart. I'm not. I don't mean. I don't, I don't mean that as a knock on the guy. And just like completely, what you're saying is all good. I think the other strongly Howardian thing um, is kind of twofold. One, the manner in which 
Fatbird and the Green Mauser came to knowledge of this treasure is very Conan, right? And the fact that he makes a very power, a politically powerful enemy in so doing is straight out of Howard. And then the way in which, and I, I think this is true for all three of the stories, the prose isn't wasted. Um, whereas Lovecraft, I was thinking when we were drawing those parallels that if this had been a Lovecraft, when, you know, Jeff or whoever was like, if this had been a Lovecraft piece, then my my mind instantly went to, it would be four times as long. Mm-hmm. Right? Well, there'd be, there'd is, be a good, a good thousand words. That's just description of the, of the building, the building slash monster. Exactly. And, in key in, in sometimes to Howard's detriment, like when we were, uh, reading, uh, oh, uh, hour of the dragon, for instance, where it jumped a little quickly from from thing to thing this doesn't waste much time it's very concise and it tells you exactly what you need it still paints a, a very vivid picture of what's going on but it doesn't beat it into the ground and it's it becomes more action oriented because of it and that's a page right out of Howard's book mm-hmm. yeah I, I think it's safe to say that library must have been you know familiar with Conan and the works of works of Howard when he was writing this um, to what extent is this basically Conan fan fiction, do you think? Is that something that he was consciously consciously thinking about? Well, I'm uh, sure by taking that basic mm-hmm. taking that basic uh, pattern, the basic concept of the the mighty Thude uh, adventurer hero, and you know applying it to something that. Because you know that's because that, that's the thing is we're moving out with the, with these stories we're moving out of the the 1930s and into the 1940s and you know this was edited by John W Campbell we're we're entering into a different era of fantasy uh, with these stories and how so how is this a shift away from what Howard was doing in the same way that what Howard was doing was a shift away from what Edgar Rice Burroughs was doing. I would say that this is the the moment where if sword and sorcery becomes its own subgenre, as opposed to just the fluke of one writer's style, right? There's a reason why when we think sword and sorcery fantasy, why just like Jeff said at the beginning that it's Howard Liber and Michael Moorcock are immediately come to mind. But Liber's stuff was particular, the, I, I haven't read any of his other things, but with Afford and the Grey Mauser, it seems to really start cementing the milieu that we're working in when we talk about a sword and sorcery setting. There is magic, but it's not overbearing. It's not like Tolkien, where there are magical races all over the place. Um, it has this setting that is just realistic enough or has just enough analog to the... to the history of our own world that we can draw parallels and feel like we're at home in it or, or glance over some things that, that, that Howard was really good at pioneering. I, I think it's, uh, you know, speaking about prose, one of the things about why Howard ends up being, you know, as legendary as he is, is he's got a real poetic turn to his language. Mm-hmm. The stories would be kind of, kind of almost boring if it didn't have that, that poetic overlay to them to make them seem more epic. Um, the prose here is not quite so poetic and it doesn't have uh, Lovecraft's sort of excessive verbosity, uh, but he does have some very nice artful turns. I love how the beginning of the story and the end of the story, he, he doesn't say the names of the characters. He describes them. He describes what they're doing, and you know who they are because 
you know, the characters by the end of the story. Uh, and if you've read any of the other stories, you immediately recognize the characters just from the descriptions. You don't need them to say the names. The year of the behemoth, the month of the hedgehog, the day of the toad is definitely evocative of something. Mm -hmm. It's it's a mix of the familiar and the exotic behemoth hedgehog. Yeah. Uh, that how how often do you see behemoth and hedgehog next to each other? I think I think it's 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 interesting that that with phrases like 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 that, uh, he he's really establishing that that this is that this is a fantasy world that is is not Earth. It's it's not like a past version of of Earth. It's not like a secret history of of earth it's it's some other planet or some other dimension and I, I don't think we've really seen that yet no uh i own a copy that's incredibly beat up of the second edition like my adventure and with your permission of course would you like me to read an excerpt from the actual their explanation of that story the jewels in the forest uh go ahead Okay, uh, well, I'll just take one paragraph here, what they actually call it as when they were comparing it within game knowledge of the second edition era. Mm -hmm. This is a classic D&D adventure, avoiding traps to gather a dead sorcerer's treasure amidst the ruins of the Citadel, with the original twist of a living Citadel as the primary trap and opponent. Whether or not the players are familiar with this story or have foreshadowing of the type of opponent they will facing, braving the treasure house of Yorgan will make an excellent fantasy adventure. One possible adventure element can focus on the original thefts of the description of the treasure house, from the library of Lord Ranash, was it a burglary? Were the pair of guests of Ranash or in his ploy at the time? Ranash might have lived in Lankor City or in a neighboring kingdom, allowing the adventure to range throughout the countryside. That's it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you could you could really turn this this whole scenario into an adventure very, very easily. Um, I feel like I've read that OSR adventure at some point, actually. Yeah. yeah. In in. So in in terms of, of how it's uh, different from from you know what's 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 come before i i i i'd say that that um Fawford and 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 the gray mauser seemed like like they they'd be more fun to ad, adventure with i mean they they laugh and joke and 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 they seem like they they seem like like fun people you know conan conan comes off as as uh very stern and as as likely to kill you as as he is to kill his you know your your enemies um you think i don't know i feel like we only ever see conan in like high stress situations and that if you met conan socially you think he was a great guy well they do say he has a uh, large mirth so he he apparently is uh conan, given to laughing and, and he's got an 18 jokes. charisma right yeah right like you can become king after all. Conan seems like he would he would like you if you were also a barrel-chested fighting man uh, like himself, and he would ig ignore you you otherwise. And uh, John Carter seems like he's always making speeches about uh, his his red hot Virginian fighting man blood. So yeah, I mean John John Carter is not somebody that you would want to to hang out with. Um, Conan though he in uh, Lord what is it uh, Sword of the Phoenix. Phoenix on the sword. He uh, he talks about how he was 
bummed to have to murder one of the guys who was trying to assassinate him. You know, that scene where like 30 guys sneak into his bedroom mm-hmm. to assassinate him and he takes all of them out. Uh, he afterwards expresses regret that he had to kill one of the guys because that one guy was a poet that he was kind of a fan of. Uh, Ronaldo, Ronaldo the minstrel. Ronaldo, yes, Ronaldo, that was his name. Uh, we're, we're, we're on a tangent here, but I, I, I also think that Conan in, in that story is markedly different from Conan in, in every other story that Howard wrote later. But um, that's, a, that's a fair point. I think, I think we debated that during the Conan discussions, and, and we don't need to revisit that here. But uh, I, I personally would, would rather uh, hang out with uh, Fawford than, than either uh, Conan or John Carter. Is is all Fawford I'm saying. Does seem like a pretty, a pretty relaxed guy, uh, a good guy to have a drink with. Yeah. Though to be fair, Fawford and the Great Mouser may also just rob you. Mm-hmm. Well, the bunny's right. It really depends on. It, I mean, all of these things depend on context, right? Sure. I suppose. So I, I yeah. can't remember. Do they do they defeat uh, the the giant tower monster, or do they just run away from it? Uh, kinda. They basically because they grab the gem. And bring it outside, it starts falling apart. Oh, okay. And it literally starts basically heaving up like a bee moth death egg. And for lack of a better term, I think they stole part of his brain. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think so. Yeah, that's the, yeah. the implication. And then, and then we're, we're left to wonder, um, why, why, where, where did, did all of these notes come from? Because we, we discover that lots of adventurers have been lured to the tower over the years by... By notes from this this U- Ugarg the angry guy, and and Grey Mouse just sort of wonders, what, did this guy just send out twenty notes for for, for his dumb. treasure that he didn't want anyone to find? That appears to be what he did, and we're left wondering why. Um, though I guess maybe that's what the mysterious old monk who shows up and dies. That's the question that he's there to answer, and the answer is that Ugarn was was just a jerk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's. He's the DM who's overly proud of his dungeon that will uh, kill all PCs. That's really his his thing. I guess. All right. Shall we? Shall we move on to uh, the bleak shore? I don't have a problem with that, guys. Sure. Sure. So this 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 story um, seemed seemed not so much uh, Lovecraftian as Dunsanian to me, and. Uh, I, maybe you guys will agree or, or disagree. Uh, yeah, we, I could definitely say that. We we start with uh, Fawford and the Grey Mauser in a tavern in Lankmar, and they are very swiftly hypnotized by an, an old man who uh, tells them to sail across the sea to his um, to a to a certain place. I think. What, now, I, I now forget. is this? Is this the first time Fawford and the Mouser in the Silver Eel in Lankmar meeting this mysterious old man? Is this the first time in the Appendix and Canon that we have an adventure that set off by the heroes meeting a mysterious old man in a tavern who gives them an assignment? I, I yes. think so. Mm-hmm. So this is the this is the wellspring from whence all of that flows. <laughs> so he 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 says to them. Um, he he sends them to the forbidden city of the Black Isles, I think. Or no, no, no. That's not that's not what, what he sends them. The bleak shore. The bleak shore. He the tells shore. them specifically to go meet their death at the bleak shore. Oh yes, he 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 says uh, if I say the bleak shore three times, the bleak shore. If I say that three times, the bleak shore, you will get up and go there. Is basically uh, what what he what he says, and then then the rest of the story 
is told from the perspective of one of their their crewmen who who comes comes back and tells tells the the other tavern people and this is like months uh, later t- mm-hmm. tells the 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 other tavern people what what happened and it it goes into this very Dunsanian uh, dreamlike account of what what happened and they basically got in a ship and they sailed off and they were at sea for days and days and days like almost 30 40 days i think uh, yeah they, a they, thousand thousand slimy things with legs just all around them yeah. they yeah, encou- they encounter the- bad weather and some of the crewmen get swept overboard and um yeah only one of them makes it back with his wits in, uh, about him the rest of mm-hmm. them either die or go crazy Mm-hmm. I mean, it's 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 almost like um, uh, the 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 rhyme of the ancient mariner, yeah. which mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. I I totally read one time. <laughs> uh, so, so so anyways, they they get to this uh, shore. I this, this I think the perspective then shifts back to to uh, the the gray mauser and Fawford. Because uh, because um, Orf's knowledge, we 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 reach the the end of Orf's uh, story. He's the he's the crewman who survives, and the, I think I think the the uh, focus switch switches back to to uh, the Fawford and uh, the the Gray Mauser, and they basically realize that uh, the 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 old man uh, I, I guess was sort of a projection from this evil egg thing. Which 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 has been which is is luring them to the bleak shore so they can get devoured by uh, monsters. I yeah, guess. it's 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 pretty straightforward. There's a nest of baby demons that can only be nourished by the by eating the corpses of heroes. So they send out a psychic projection to force heroes to come to get eaten. Uh, Fawford and the Gray Mousers show up and they fight the baby demons. And defeat the baby demons and smash the demon eggs and congratulate themselves on a job well done at the end. Uh, more like they were grumpy as hell because they got stuck in the middle of nowhere and had to make it all the way back. I think he lost his shit for that thing. Yeah, I mean, they've, they've basically sailed over the Atlantic Ocean, or the e- equivalent there, thereof, and they have no ship back. It was sort of like the uh, voyage of the Dawn Treader, where they uh, sail west into the sunset. Only, you know, it, it, at this end, it's not uh, Jesus that they meet, but hell. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, I I did like the the description of the journey there, in that it gives you a. It's clear that Liber had a picture of what this world was like. Yeah, you know, he knew where places were. He knew that he had to describe like. They had to go past this finger of, of stone to, to get past into this great sea, and you know he, he had he populated it with peoples, and and they aren't necessarily, you know, here's Earth only shaded differently. It's its own thing. Mm-hmm. So sort of a, a very condensed version of the Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath, you sort of think. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking like, of Lovecraft. Yeah. Well, that's actually, was something I was going to bring up. Like, you know how you said this one last story was more like Conan. This one is a lot more like Lovecraft in the way mm-hmm. it's laid out, set up. It's an ill-fated voyage. The only reason they survived is because they're big dang heroes, mm-hmm. and they're ultimately. And I think it was one of them smashed the small egg. Was it Fathead or was it the Great Mouser? 
the smash essentially for lack of a better uh, term, the the the, the, the gray gray mauser yeah i mean once yeah. once again he he has an insight that just seems to come from nowhere and he and he just figures out that what he needs to do to win is to smash this this egg um we also in this story it's 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 also reinforced that that Fawford and the gray mauser are basically good good people because their their crewmen are are slaves that they that they rescued on on another ad, ad, adventure um well i think that's a misreading i was gonna say that this is where we get the the turn in sword and sorcery where we start having anti-heroes i think it's rather explicit that those mingles that they have on board are still slaves yep Th- that was definitely them, the impression they, that i got yeah they mm. are still slave owners and they're being punished for hubris and it's the thing that uh what they what uh jeremiah and chris brought up earlier is that gray mauser and faffer they'll rob you like they would be fun to hang out with but i mean they will mug you right it it the the idea of the noble savage with this morality that's better than civilization that we got out of conan doesn't seem to exist with Fapper and the Grey Mauser. They're much more self-serving, like they clearly own slaves, and Conan, for what it's worth in the stories that Howard wrote of him, is uh, is a, you know vehemently anti-slave, um, so or anti-slavery. Uh, so it just, uh, it uh, this is that turn. And again, looking ahead, when we get to Michael Moorcock, you know, Elric is just a jerk, right? Mm-hmm. He's just a terrible person. Right. So uh, this we start to see in the same, you know, as the genre cements itself, that our heroes are more anti-hero, you know, figures. They are not good people. They just are are people that in extraordinary circumstances with extraordinary ability. Well, that and it should be added, they are not as bad as the other people in the world. So they're they're bad people, but they often go up against far worse people and have at least some grounds to go, yeah, we're thieves, but we're honest about it, basically. Yeah. And again, right. Well, there's a, there's a lack of malign intent that Fofford yeah. and the Grey Mouser have, um, and I think that really the only way you can reconcile that lack of malign intent and the, and the notion that they are basically good guys, uh, which I, I feel like is... It, I, th- I, think that's, I think that's true. I think you see that in Jewels of the Forest, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that the only way to reconcile that with the fact that they're pretty comfortable owning slaves is uh, that this was written, you know, in, in prior to World War II? You know, this is a, a an era, a, di- a different era. Yeah, sure. That. And the, it is definitely the origin of. I think they are the origin of the classic icon of the honest rogue. The the yeah, he he's a he, he's a thief, but he's a good guy thief, so you don't mind. I mean, they're in the same vein as not quite Robin Hood because they steal from the rich and keep for themselves, but they're like honest roads. Yeah, they're, uh, Han Solo is a good example. They Sure, they're selfish and greedy and they will steal, but they're not, you know, they're not cruel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Grey, Grey Mauser goes out, out of his way to save a little girl. Uh, Orf, the mingle slave, says they, they, they spared his his life when they when they when they met him uh, on that ad, ad adventure where where they were they were bound to their to their service, um, yeah I, yeah I I read that they're that they're basically good good guys or or maybe just just like you said not 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 evil guys, um, def, definitely more more heroic than than uh, Conan. 
well, again, they're most likely, uh, many of it's basically based on the culture. What they're deducing is this is a slave-owning society. And that's just one of the perks of being this thing here. Hmm? Uh, well, I could do another reading if you want. Uh, uh, sure. Okay, this is the first of the stories in which Fathur and the Grey Mousers are driven to their fates like robots or puppets by powerful sorcerers, gods, and demigods. So this is going to be a regular occurrence. It also features the appearances of their longtime companion and friend, Uruf the Mungle. So he's going to be a recurring character, too. Oh, like, that's interesting. Okay. Okay, this is a good format for setting up simple adventures like the single melee counter with overwhelming opponents. Often, as in the story, the key to success is not to fight, but find the key to the puzzle. Indeed, the adventures, like the one in the Gleek Shore, little consideration is given to why the PCs must undertake a task. They are enscrolled or channeled by the wills of the gods. In this story, they are driven halfway across Nuhan just to melee with some monsters. Similarly, the GM only needs to set up a terrible opponent or perilous journey, then tell the PCs that they simply have to go there whether they want to or not. The PCs may feel like puppets rather than heroes. Biber is trying to create a sense of tragic doom for these heroes, which requires robbing them of their free will. His technique, while effective in stories when used in moderation, robs the role-playing gamer of choice and seriously limits the player's sense of enjoyment. Mm-hmm. Playing the game involves making choices. Being a puppet is suitably tragic, but not always enjoyable gaming. In moderation, such puppet- puppeteering can be fun, and occasional counter sets up a story can be effective and challenging, a combat set piece or a single encounter with a central problem to solve. However, the best adventures allow the players to feel that they have control of their characters. So sure that's, from, that's from what? Uh, Reagan's first term? Uh, the Carter years? Some, somewhere uh, back in, in, that, uh, in that time frame, right? The, the Lockmar second edition would have been uh, 80s, early oh, 80s? Se- second edition? Then it would have been a little, had, had, would have had to have been a little bit later, right? Okay. Here it's the second edition thing. Yeah, but, second edition um, is like 88 or 89, right? Yeah. But anyway, it was 20, 30 years ago. And I feel like the, uh, this, is, this is an area where, another area where kind of gaming has shifted. Uh, because if I was looking to, to recreate something like the Bleak Shore, I wouldn't worry about saying to the player characters, okay, you have to embark upon this journey. I would just say, okay, the, as the story opens, you have embarked upon this journey. Um, you know, uh, use, uh, use aggressive scene framing to just mm-hmm. make yeah. it clear that that's what the story uh, or what the adventure is about, which is, a, I think, a different way of looking at it than was kind of presumed in the, the more... OSR-ish uh, earlier days of AD&D, where you know, it, it was just taken for granted that the players would be interested in working out the logistics of how exactly it was that they got the boat full of slaves to take them across the journey, uh, across the ocean to hell. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd almost start it like at the island, at the bleak shores. Say, you got here, we're going to explain how it happened later. And now you got to survive it. Then we basically just fill in the black story as time progresses. Well, that's that, that's how would, that's how really lots of, what, uh, kind of uh, what kind of like journey system you had. If there was something, if there was some cool way to simulate the the travel across the ocean, then we'd like, want to include uh, like that. In, Otherwise, in, you just skip uh, over it. In in the, the one ring is what I was yep, thinking of specifically. Yep. Yeah. Well, I mean, this, that's that's how how lots of uh, organized play ad, ad, adventures start. Just just because you 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 have a four hour hour time limit. And you know you you have to do the adventure that you agreed to to sit down and play. So it usually starts with your your bosses have sent you to this place, and you're gonna gonna do this thing. 
Yep, it's a little bit railroady, but at the same time, everybody showed up to play an adventure, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and particularly if it's uh, an organized play thing, you, ha- you know what adventure you signed up for. Mm-hmm. It's the one with the one with the ocean voyage or the one with the demon at nest or whatever. There, there, there is a spell that, that can, can compel adventurers to go on a quest, and it's, 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 it's called geese. So, I could never come up with a, I could never come up with a way just in my head that it would make sense to use geese in a game. As a spell, uh, if a wizard wants to send someone to the bleak shore so that his demon babies can eat them, if I'm a wizard who can cast geese, surely I have more efficient ways of getting my demon babies fed. I don't know. Maybe you do. Maybe yeah. you don't. Maybe he's doing it for the novelty. It's hard to say. I know, right? All right. So, um, shall we move on to the Howling Tower then? Okay. All right, so who who wants to summarize this uh, this tale? Maybe Peter. Sure, I'd be happy to take a stab at it. Um, okay, so in the Howling Tower, uh, Pepper and the Gray Mouser are traveling with an unnamed guide, and uh, they are going through the wilderness, and they hear a large noise, which Fafford immediately thinks is the baying of wolves coming from a northern waste. He's like, "Oh, awesome wolves! I kill these." And is kind of cool about it, right? Rather jovial. As they travel on, they find out from the guide that there is just this noise. It's not wolves. There aren't wolves in the region. It's just this penetrating noise um, that legend holds comes from this tower a long distance off. Fafford, as time goes on, is super excited to go and check this out and find out this noise and slaughter the wolves or whatever is causing it. And uh, off they go. He gets really stoked about it. Uh, is in a great mood the whole time. And one morning when Grey Mauser wakes up, Fafford is gone, goes to find him at the tower, finds out the tower is inhabited by a, I guess, wizard, for lack of a better term, or sorcerer of some kind, mm-hmm. who has slaughtered his own family uh, to get this noise to go away, and is now has drugged uh, Fafford into fighting the ghosts of his family members and these dogs or wolves or what have you, so that he may get some peace, uh, at which point uh, Grey Mauser drugs the wizard and himself. They are able to defeat the ghosts. The guy gets, you know, owned by the ghosts that uh, he, uh, of his family members, and they're able to trot away uh, with relatively unscathed. I think, I think the noise started after he murdered his, his family. Is, is that, that yeah. correct? It's yeah, the howling of the ghost uh, ghost dogs. Yeah, he he basically wanted to be king of this tower in the, in the middle of nowhere, so he he killed his own family and 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 I think I think the the dogs were were the last were the last to be killed and he 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 killed them by basically breaking them up in the basement until they devoured each each other. Uh, and and the noise is is the ghosts of all the people and dogs that that he killed coming back to him for revenge, uh, which which begs the question: Why doesn't he just leave this tower in the middle of nowhere and go somewhere else? Yeah, I, I gotta <laughs> say that this this story compared to the other two uh, did not impress me nearly as much. I thought it was kind of plodding. Uh, one thing that I did like about it, or that I thought was memorable about it, was that uh, gold pieces are present and referred to as gold pieces, mm. um, which is very D and D. And another thing where, you know, this this seems like somebody's Dungeons and Dragons fan fiction that just teleported backwards in time. Aren't aren't um, they also uh, tri- triangular? I think. 
They're called gold pieces, man. What do you want? Baby steps. The oh, triangular on. ones, that's a reference from the previous story when oh, okay. uh, Ray Mauser's gambling. I know I know what you're talking about though. Yeah. I and that, that I I just I just uh, noticed that cuz I think I think the coins in Waterdeep in Forgotten Realms are are all are irregularly shaped and I know that because in the, in the Lords of Waterdeep board game uh, you you have coins and they're shaped like weird things. In every campaign that I ran in high school and college, I that was D and D. I tried so hard to remember to call gold pieces eagles or shields or ducats or whatever. And like halfway through the by, by halfway through the first session, I had I had forgotten and was just calling them calling them GPs and gold pieces. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I could not keep to that. Gold pieces is just just ingrained in me. It, well, is, it is what it is. I did like this story for sort of demonstrating the kind of character that Mouser, Grey Mouser is. Because not only is he sneaky and sly and everything, but he's deeply loyal to Fafford, first off. Mm-hmm. And second off, uh, he is perfectly willing to uh, uh, get all murdery if his friend's in danger. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It seems like in these three stories we spend more time in Grey Mauser's head than we do in Fawford's. Yeah, by a fair margin, I think. Mm-hmm. I think Fawford feels like the straight man to Grey Mauser. Mm-hmm. You know, he doesn't seem overly bright compared to the other ones. because He's the one that more likely than not falls into the trap. And, I, and I, only I, his impressive physical stats seem to keep him alive. And I, I know because I, I've read some of the other stories that that, that won't always be the case that 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 Fawford does get get deeper and more complex um but yeah it 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 does seem like seem like Mauser is the is the POV character for for the time being it kind of reminds me of some of those Conan stories in which Conan is not the POV character but rather Conan's like sidekick of, for mm-hmm. this story or associate is the uh, the POV character right like like the one where they're defending that fort from like the jungle savages or yeah, beyond the Black River, I think. Yeah, or the uh, the one with the giant snake in the uh, museum. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. The uh, I, I, there are definitely some stories later on that definitely show that actually Fafford is really quite bright. He mm-hmm. just comes from a different culture. He is not as urbane as or urban, for that matter. Uh, as uh, mm-hmm. Great Mouser is, he seems pretty relaxed about stuff. Yeah, hmm? like his first response when he hears the Hollywood Woods is, "I want wolf skin." <laughs> Actually, it kind of endears me to him a little bit. And we can we can assume that that this story takes place as they're as they're somehow walking back from from the bleak shore. I mean, this was this was written. So so bleak shore was written in, in 1940. This was this was written in in 1941. I don't know what magazines they were originally published in, but uh, as, as far as I'm aware, these stories were written run, one after another. There was nothing in in between, um, and of course, it's 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 only much later in in 1970 when Library just just decided that these stories are chronologically one after after the other. But it it it, it does seem that they're sort of walking across some some sort of you know land bridge. In the in the frozen north, that 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 connects 
whatever continent the bleak shore was on with uh, the 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 main continent. It it should be pointed out, you know, we're doing this in publication order uh, as opposed to the accepted chronological order of the the stories, but the collections, uh, Swords Against Deviltry and Swords Against Death and so on, are ostensibly done in chronological order, mm-hmm. and uh, they uh, they actually follow the story from uh, Bleak Shore, and then there are like three or four stories of them getting back to Lankmar. Okay. Uh, all in, in Swords Against Death. So mm-hmm. that that's their their journey there. And this is part of the, that series of stories. Yep, in, in, in Swords Against Death, uh, The Bleak Shore is story number four, and The Howling Tower is story number five. Uh, Swords Against Death itself is the, is the second of the seven-part uh, collection. Um, but we will, we will not be going through the story. I'm, so I'm, I'm not yet sure if we want to read um, all of the Fofford and, and Grey Mauser stories. There are certainly way more of them than there, than there are uh, Conan stories. Um, so I'll, I'll have to we'll, we'll have to really think about whether or not we want to how 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 much we we want to do, and if if listeners would would like to to write in and and offer suggestions, uh, that would certainly be be helpful. But I I don't think we're going to cover all of them. Maybe maybe just well, just the greatest hits. On the one hand, there's a whole lot of them. Uh, on the other hand, if we look at it in terms specifically of publication order, uh, going through, going th- going across the 20th century chronologically, um, then they are going to get spread out a little bit. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, looking at these stories, I feel like these are pretty darn foundational to Dungeons and Dragons. Mm-hmm. Um, so my vote is that we is that we uh, we push forward with. Uh, Offered and the Grey Mouse, or at least until we get tired of them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, yeah, that's a good plan. Yeah. Well, again, it's we did Conan, we did Lovecraft, and it makes only sense to do the Lankmar stuff as well. Mm-hmm. Even if I'm, always... be... Sorry. I'm eventually going to be pushing real hard to do as much of Jack Vance as I can talk uh, <laughs> Jeff into reading. When so, when I... when we started doing Lovecraft, I I made <clears throat> I, I made the decision to pick twenty stories, no more than twenty stories. Because uh, there is just so much uh, Lovecraft that that you could mm-hmm. not cover it at all. And when I, when we started doing doing Howard, I, I just I just looked at the list of Conan stories and I, I went, well, there's there's only about fifteen of these, and we're doing twenty Lovecraft stories, so surely we can cover uh, all of Conan as well. But looking at the list of Fawford and Grey Mouser stories, there's there's way more than than twenty, I think. Um, but we, yeah, I think I think just doing it until we we, we get tired uh, of them is is a good idea. I'm I'm definitely not not tired of them yet. Uh, they're 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 fun. They're they're easy easy to read. Um, to give a window onto the future of reading Longmar stories, mm-hmm. uh, the the notion of thieves guilds as it's represented in D and D absolutely comes from Longmar. Mm-hmm. And you you get a lot of really good stories that are just urban adventures, mm-hmm. which I love. I love good city set adventures. Well, I'm I'm pretty sure Greyhawk City is is based on on Lank Lankmar. Yeah. 
Of course, part of my desire to uh, go through all of the Dying Earth is um, it's going to mean eventually moving moving on to the Dying Earth. So that's something that cuts both ways. Great. Well, mm-hmm. do you want to do the final reading for the thing? Or? Uh, sure. Sure. Okay. Sure. Last paragraph of the thing. The hounds that became spectral haunches, haunts, magically created by their own hate and lust for revenge, suggest that other creatures which have died may sustain their existence after death on the strength of their passion for revenge. Other tomes and buildings may be inhabited by such enchanted creatures. In this type of story, the spectral creatures cannot have any physical effect on victims other than the psychological effect of their howling, unless the victims have taken a potion that sends their spirits to the astral plane. PCs might take this potion voluntarily in order to explore the astral plane, they may drink this potion accidentally or through trickery, leaving them vulnerable to the attacks of astral creatures, or they may inadvertently stumble into the astral plane while dreaming. And it's funny how they really try to hammer home the idea of using that astral focus for these creatures, even though it was never actually mentioned in the little stories. Yeah, we missed... Uh, I, do, I did feel a little bit cheated reading this story that we didn't get to see um, the Grey Mouser going to the astral plane. We, I think I, th- I thought we, we did get a brief brief description of... Uh, I I thought it was more more like like the shadow plane personally, but or or even even the gray wastes. Uh, that, they, that's true. That's true. It was they, brief. It was very brief. Do they name it the astral plane? I, I don't. I don't. I don't remember. Well, that. I don't think they ever it by name. They just basically said it was some sort of sp- like. It sounded more like it was almost out of phase. Like they were basically just you turn into a ghost to fight a ghost until you die. Yeah, but I I did I did like that it's. Here, here we we have a monster that you you can't just stab. Uh, you know, if the if the old man wasn't there to explain things to the to the heroes, you'd have to, you know, figure out how to how to beat the curse your, yourself, and that would be a fun adventure, I think. Oh, agreed completely. Or a, a fun way for the GM to kill all the all the players. Yeah. Well, which again, is, which is how GMs have have fun, right? Sure. Sure. Why not? Sure. Yeah, I've run Tomb of Horrors. Yeah. <laughs> so did did everyone purchase a, a paperback copy of Swords Against Death for this? I actually got the audiobook. Oh, nice. Uh, 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 Neil Gaiman, who is one of my favorite writers, actually encouraged Audible to uh, do uh, an audiobook of all the Lockmar stories mm-hmm. and adds uh, his own sort of introduction at the beginning mm-hmm. saying why they're cool and why what's so interesting about them. Uh, and I find that alone was worth uh, picking them up for, but uh, the, the readings are good and uh, uh, they have an excellent narrator for them. A few years back, I was fortunate enough to get uh, the, both of the Golance collections of them. It's like two volumes and has all seven of those Lance, of what was in the Lance paperbacks. The downside is that there's no table of contents, so trying to find the story was a little bit arduous. Uh, you know, you're flipping through like a thousand pages trying mm-hmm. to find it, but uh, yeah. Um, as like a little plug, just because I'm such an like evangelical, like uh, uh, Dungeon Crawl Classics fan, if you guys are into OSR gaming, um, Goodman Games is like Dungeon Crawl Classics. They actually have the rights from Liber's uh, a state, and they're the ones that are publishing stuff set in Lankmar now. And they actually also uh, were announced, announced at Gen Con that they uh, got the rights for Vance, and will be doing a Dying Earth oh, set. Wow. Yeah, yep. It, interestingly and, enough, uh, uh, there's a Savage Worlds 
uh, also has a license to Lankmar. Hmm. That's awesome. Yep. So if you're if you don't want to do D and D and want to try something else, they also have it. Lots of lots of ways to to, to play Lankmar. I actually have the the uh, Ace books paperback featuring a big blue giant guy with a trident on the cover. Awesome. Uh, my, my 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 favorite part of, of these are are the ads in the back for like more more books. There's there's an entire page of um, uh, Robert Lynn Aspirin uh, Thieves World books. Ooh, nice. And then and the, like like the like the final page is, is is like just a mix of folks I've never heard of, mixed in with you know Robert E. Howard, Roger Zelazny. So you can you you can buy Conan by Robert E. e E. Howard, you can buy Daughter of the Bright Moon by Lynn Abbey, or you can buy Jerig by Stephen by Stephen Brust for two fifty. Who, if you like uh, stories about rogues, you should read that book. Jerig, yeah, yeah. Of, of course, I name someone that Jeremiah has has heard of, but I've I've never heard <laughs> heard, heard heard of this uh, this guy. Not familiar with Brust. <laughs> Uh, he he also actually wrote some Firefly fan fiction after the show got canceled. Oh my! Well, who who didn't write Firefly fan fiction? Well, I should probably uh, bring this discussion to a close. Uh, Jeff, where on the web can people find you and your writing? Uh, really, the most active place to find me is the secret Facebook group that is full of pictures of my infant son. But you know that's a secret, so. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a no-go for... It's a secret to everyone. Yeah, sure. it's a secret to everybody. Uh, in theory, I still have jeffwick.com, but you know, part of having a seven-month-old son is not updating jeffwick.com. So, sorry about that, everybody. Don't apologize. Peter, where on the web can people find you? Cromcountthedead.com. Uh, uh, and actually, uh, by the time this posts, the new website will will have launched. So it won't just be a blog spot anymore, and we'll have a lot more going on, including stuff for live streaming from gaming, um, podcasts of my own with my friend Phil, and uh, my own blogs and such. So uh, it's 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 amazing what uh, what losing your job will will do for your ambition. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, Jeremiah, where on the web can people find you? Well, I, I have a YouTube channel, uh, The Basics of the Game, where I talk about a lot of gaming uh, nerdery stuff, although I haven't updated it in about two months, uh, but that will be picking up now that uh, certain family health dramas are beginning to slow down. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm also at jeremiahmccoy.com. Yeah, not 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 updating seems seems to be a theme with 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 all of us. I just I just moved into a new apartment myself, so uh, yeah, I'm 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 pretty pretty behind on 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 things. And Chris Constantine, I hear you published a book. Yes, I just recently put a book out on the Dungeon Masters Guild. Uh, Excellent. Right up your alley because I remember I know you're a diehard fan of the Azur Bonds, the Thunderstone trilogy, Jeff. Is that mm, yes, yes. Okay, so I wrote a book called The Sorials of the Lost Vale, where my other speech is as follows. From the depths of time, the Sorials have descended upon the Forgotten Realms. This ancient primal race has been quiet for at least two editions. They are silent no more as their secrets have been unveiled from the Lost Vale at last. Nice. And, yeah, basically it's 99 pages. I got my first review and it's a full five stars, so I'm pretty stoked about that. Yeah, and, on. yeah so hopefully it'll lead to bigger and better things. 
Uh, as for my personal stuff, uh, probably the easiest thing to find me is on Twitter, where you go to D- at RPG. Besides my post-post-apocalyptic world, I'm co-host of RPG Circus, and uh, basically also have my personal blog, which is Breath of Pot Sanity, where I write all sorts of crazy stuff. Recently, I just wrote something on Minotaurs. So, thank you, gentlemen. If you did a write-up of uh, Mo- Mo- Moander, uh, the, the god-demon-monster thing, I'd be right there. Okay, listeners, that brings another show to a close. You can contact me, Jeffrey Wynn, by emailing thetomeshow at thetomeshow at gmail.com. Put appendix N in the subject line so that they forward it to me. You can follow me on Twitter at Jeffrey D. Wynn. That's G-E-O-F-F-R-E-Y, the letter D-W-I-N-N. And you can also follow me on Instagram at the same uh, screen name if you want to see pictures of my food. Uh, the next episode will be discussed. The next episode will be a discussion of three short stories by August Derleth, The Return of Hastur, Ithaqua, and Beyond the Threshold. So be sure to grab them and read along if you dare. This has been Appendix N, Episode 35, The Tales of Fawford and the Grey Mauser by Fritz Leiber, Part 1. Thanks for listening.